On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn how their grantees are helping to address the coronavirus crisis at templeton.org. Gregory Orr is a poet and a teacher on how language can become a tool for carrying what feels unbearable. When he was 12, on a first hunting trip with his father, he accidentally shot and killed his younger brother. Yet he has wrested a lifetime of gentle, healing, life-giving words from one of the most terrible traumas imaginable. And right now, we're all carrying some magnitude of grief in our bodies. We ordinary just people, just in our daily lives, we experience enormous amounts of disorder and confusion. It's inside us, it's in our past, uh, it's in the unknowable future, and we just navigate our lives with this kind of interplay of disorder and order. And, And then what poetry says to us is, turn your confusion, turn your world into words. Take it outside yourself into language. Poetry says, I'm gonna meet you halfway. You just bring me your chaos. I'll bring you all sorts of ordering principles. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Gregory Orr is the author of over a dozen books of poetry and prose. He is a poet in the lyric tradition, the poetry of emotions, often in the voice of individual experience, which also lends itself to song. I met him at the 2018 Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival in Newark, New Jersey. I was thinking as I was getting ready to speak with you that, about how um, human beings become wise um, sometimes by discovering things no one had ever known before, and sometimes we become wise by remembering and rediscovering things that people knew forever once and then we forgot. And I, I'm, I'm aware, in the circles in which I move, this really, of this really unexpected movement of our time, often led by young people, by millennials, who are claiming grief and loss and death as human experiences. And there are things called death cafes, and the dinner party, which is a movement, and it was founded by people who had terrible loss in their early lives, mm-hmm. and there was no place for them to talk about that in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the, what they want to do is claim grief and death as something that's not, not to pathologize it, but a, as a part of life that we reckon with and show and can ask and can, can accompany others in and be accompanied. Um, yes. In, yes, it is. Fascinating. It's fascinating. And, and bring the griever, the person who's lost, back into some form of human community. Yes. It sounds fascinating. I'd need to know more before yeah, I could. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I thought, thought about it obviously because um, an origin point and really enduring focus of your poetry and of you becoming a poet was with this terrible, terrible death and loss, um, which was your younger brother's death. And you were on the cusp of adolescence. You were, as you said, you're a kid participating in a popular American ritual, ritual hunting firing a gun, becoming a man. Um, and actually, I'm not going to ask you to read the poem. That I, just In every interview I've seen, everybody hands you this poem right at the beginning, which <laughs> begins, I was 12 when I killed him. Mm. 
And I just, I, we're going to talk about that, but I kind of just want to start someplace a little softer. I mean, I think small talk has Good. a purpose, right? It's because to ease us into other conversations, yeah. like just where did you grow up? You know, where did yes. you grow up? Yes, um, I grew up in upstate New York, rural Hudson Valley. Um, we had one stoplight, two drugstores, one jukebox, and the dark drugstore, and um, seven or eight churches. My father was a country doctor, so we lived out in the country. And as you say, one of the rituals, one of the realities of that world, there are two realities, I guess. One is going to church, and the other is, is going hunting. And there must be other ones, too, as well. Yeah, yeah. But that's where I grew up. You've often said that, uh, that you lost your faith on the day um, your brother died. And partly, or, or I mean, certainly a huge piece of that was just were the platitudes that came at you. I mean, he's with Jesus now. or Somehow everything has a purpose. Um, I do wonder if there was a religious or spiritual background, however you might define that now. Um, it seems like that so much of that was swallowed whole for you by that event, but is there anything there that perhaps at this remove you think of um, when I ask about the spiritual background of your sure. childhood? Sure. Um, I wish I could locate something in relation to uh, the religious background that I had that provided consolation. I will come up with something at a certain point, but as you say, what I experienced on that day was what I would call premature consolation, which is the, the moment where somebody tells you, oh, this is fine. Um, your brother is in heaven. But uh, I did actually have some consolation from the, the religious background I had, which is to say that Stories are sustaining structures. Mm. Suddenly, all the meaning was taken out of my life by this inexplicable experience, which was also something I was at the center of. Um, but there was a story. Uh, Cain kills Abel. There you go. So there's the consolation of story. I knew who I was, even as I entered a world where I understood nothing and seemed powerless. Mm-hmm. But um, Isaac Dennison, the, the Danish writer, has a wonderful saying that I think is true. She said, any sorrow can be born if it can be made into a story mm-hmm. or a story can be told about it. I'll go to the consolation first, then I'll go to the despair. Yeah, yeah. The consolation was, okay, Cain lives. He begs God to kill him. And God says, no, that would be too easy. That wouldn't do the lesson. Um, You're going to live. You're going to live in shame and isolation at the fringes of all human worlds. And I thought, well, that's it. That's what I'll I'll do. Because I didn't want to die. I mean, not at that point. I wanted to live, but you can't live in a world without meaning. Mm -hmm. To be Cain is, is obviously also grandiose, but children are grandiose, aren't they? They do think they're at the center of some story, even if it's a bad one. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you said somewhere that you, um, 
you lived for four years after your brother's death without any hope at all. And then you met Mrs. Irving, who helped you work with words in a whole new way. I mean, those, you know, that premature consolation was actually a, a careless, careless use of words, wasn't it? And well, I, I, think, I think everybody in my immediate environment that day was looking at, at deeply into the world of terror mm-hmm. and horror. Mm-hmm. And, and I think anybody who could reached as quickly as possible for some um, reassurance, some understanding, some ordering. You can't live without meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think there were two paths I found to meaning. One was writing through the guidance of this teacher. The first other path for me was social activism. So when I was 18, I went to uh, Mississippi to work as a volunteer and just ended up getting arrested and beaten and kidnapped by a, <laughs> a murderous individual. And I, I, that adjective is an accurate, not mm-hmm. hyperbolic term. A law enforcement official. Yes, Hainville, yeah. Alabama. Uh, a month after I was there, uh, this same person who kidnapped me off the highway uh, murdered a theology student, Jonathan Daniels. Yeah, so I, I, I and, then, and then I decided poetry was a safer path to meaning. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. I mean, really, I, you know, to go from an individual trauma to the world of social trauma, mm-hmm. political trauma, um, educational thing. I kept thinking also, um, reading you, um, about this phrase of the rabbis that words make worlds. Beautiful. And I feel like that's. That's one way to talk about how you've leaned into words as, and poetry as survival and salvation. And absolutely, absolutely. What we're talking here is lyric poetry, right? We're talking the voice of the individual self. But even to name, say, lyric poetry. So let's talk about that because that's, because that's a distinction you make. Let's talk about the rabbis. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's yes. so beautiful words and so true. Make worlds because it's true. One of the first things I discovered, what, what made me a, a poet the moment it had happened, the moment I wrote my first terrible poem, was the discovery that language in poetry is magical language. It creates a world. It summons uh, a world into being. And, and, and that's uh, astounding. It's not descriptive. I mean, prose becomes persuasive and interesting to us when it's vividly describing an inner or an outer world and, and more power to it. But the existential necessity of poetry, lyric poetry and song, emerges from its uh, the magical power of language to to create worlds that dramatize both our um, experience of disorder and our need for for order vividly present both Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with lyric poet Gregory Orr. You like to quote um, Helen Keller, 
Mm. Who, because of the, you know, being born blind and deaf, um, she discovered language in a different way than most. It was a cathartic moment. And you, you quote her in saying, you know, we walk down the path to the well house attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water and my teacher placed my hand under the spout as the cool stream gushed over my hand. She spelled into the other the word water. First slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of t- returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. <laughs> there it is. And it's so beautifully primal. Here in, in one palm is the water flowing over it. And here she's spelling out the word water. Helen Keller was seven and she, she understood this, this sign thing in the sense that she understood her teacher was doing it, but she didn't have any idea what it meant or what its purpose was. And then suddenly they came together. And as she said, it was like language was a, a form of seeing for her. Mm-hmm. Something as essential and existential as that seems to me to reveal what language in a poem can do. And I think because language is something most of us, it's, it's all around us from the very beginning. It's ordinary. It, we do, you know, she, because it was hidden to her in some ways, um, she experienced that magic in a way that we don't know. You experienced it also because of coming out of trauma. And, 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 I mean, she, she's a beautiful example of it, but, but we see it with children too. I yeah. mean, I love, yeah. I love when a child is just starting to get the mystery of, of, of language, and, and there it is. That forefoot walks into the room, and the kid goes, doggy, doggy, doggy. And you look at their face, and right. there it is, pure joy. It happens to be a cat. <laughs> what matter? Right. What's happening is that word and that creature are coming together, and the child's alive with it. You know, there's a poem in concerning the body, the book that is the body of the beloved, where actually you are paraphrasing the rabbis. Let's remake the world with words. Mm. You want to read this one? Yes. <laughs> That's you. Yes. Of course, one of my rabbis would be Wordsworth, the poet. Yes. Let's remake the world with words. Not frivolously, nor to hide from what we fear, but with a purpose. Let's, as Wordsworth said, remove the dust of custom so things shine again, each object arrayed in its robe of original light. And then, We'll see the world as if for the first time, as once we gazed at the beloved 
who was gazing at us. Mm. And of course, we're talking about poetry, but really we're talking about life. <laughs> we're talking so. about how poetry, what poetry works in us, what it gives voice to. I know, so in, in September 2002, which I guess is when you published this book, um, po- is it Poetry as Survival? You wrote a piece actually reflecting on the, it was a year, the first year anniversary after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And, and you, you talked about lyric poetry, and I think that, dis- that distinction is important, that, those, that, that using that, making that distinction. And, and again, and it's very much about speaking to the human condition. And um, so, so talk about um, you know, the personal lyric as a poetic form that helps us to live, um, and that especially in crisis. And, and, and what, you know, again, what you're distinguishing there and, and, and talking about that really has to do with all of us and not just the poet. Sure. Well, it seems to me, I, I, I could begin in any number of different places, but probably I should begin, in a sense, autobiographically. We'll anchor from that and go outward. Um, my experience of trauma uh, was, uh, as, as a 12-year-old, was uh, there's the board with the, the game pieces on it, and in one gesture, all the pieces are scattered off the board. But it's such a powerful gesture that the board itself is erased. There's no longer shoots and ladders, clue, monopoly, whatever game you want, checkers, chess. The pieces are gone, but the board itself is erased as well. It's just a blank. This is the abyss. This is the world of no meaning. And of course, with trauma, you also get this threat to the integrity, not just, not just the meaning of the world around you, but the integrity of the self is also threatened, even destroyed. What we know about trauma is that it shatters us. But let's step back from that into just the ordinary, beautiful world of lyric poetry and what it's there for. Uh, lyric poetry being song. It's in every culture, every time. Now you said it's also Gershwin, Dylan, and hip-hop. Absolutely. I mean, you know... It's ancient and it's all these new forms. Yeah, you know, there's this silly, dumb debate that used to go on when I was uh, young, a million years ago, about is is, uh, rock and roll really poetry? Well, the, the Nobel Prize Committee solved that for us. Okay, yeah, okay. Bob Dylan, there you go. Let's stop talking about that and talk about something that matters. But what seems to me the reason that what's so beautiful about lyric poetry is that what it does is we ordinary just people just in our daily lives, we experience enormous amounts of disorder and confusion. It's inside us. It's, it's in our past. Uh, it's in the unknowable future. So disorder is a part of our life. We all know that. We also know that we need order, that some kind of patterns reassure us, the, you know, the sun rising, the stars and the moon, the seasons, our personal habits, which I love, you know, the habit that reassures us about the world. 
What happens with, with you know, we, and we just navigate our lives with this kind of interplay of disorder and order. But a person in crisis, an individual in crisis, is someone who's been um, bowled over by some kind of crisis. And, and then what poetry says to us is, you know what? Turn your confusion, turn your world into words. Take it outside yourself into language. And I'm going to, poetry says, I'm going to meet you halfway. You just bring me your chaos. I'll bring you all sorts of ordering principles. Mm -hmm. I'll bring you story. If you want sonnets, I'll bring you sonnets. What we're going to do is we're going to let your crisis shine through this ordering principle. There's something you say about this. I just want to say this, or that, so yeah, somewhere you said, right, so there is this order and disorder that we're always straddling, and, and somewhere you said what the words can do is it doesn't change the disorder, it holds the disorder, which is the opposite move of, of yes, well-meaning people who want to say to anyone in a moment of crisis, somehow it's okay, Somehow it's okay. Somehow there's sense to this. Instead of saying, "Hold this, yes, be there," hold this in in the way that that probably young people who are traumatized they don't want words. They want to be held, mm. and and that that holding the the word the poem holds it, and and uh, and yet it's taken it outside of you and it's made it a thing in the world. It's given you. You've restabilized yourself by writing a right. poem. Right, Restab- restabilizing the self. Somewhere you talk about how, you know, that we have very sophisticated and well-worn ways to not do this, to not hold it. And one is, you know, can be a simplistic religious way, you know, somehow this is God's plan. Um, and then the philosophers will often ask us to rise above it, right? Mm-hmm. The rational Western tradition somehow thinks you should also be able to rise above it. Um, you know, on September 11th, our president told people to go shopping. That's another thing we do. I'm adding that to your list, uh, right? I mean, there's the, right? There are ways we avoid... <laughs> Let the record show. Let the... <laughs> um, yeah. Right? So, but then one thing you point out about what is missing in those ways we deny and try to get around grief and crisis and loss is the personal lyric clings to embodied being, like insists that we stay in our bodies. And, you know, one of the things you also said about that terrible day when you're brother died when you accidentally shot him on that hunting trip, which was supposed to be a rite of passage, was that, you know, you, you understood that, um, and this is what happened, you know, families fall apart after experiences like this, that there's this need we have to blame um, and somehow not take in that this is an extreme version of the fact that being an embodied, being a human being, living in a body is has jeopardy involved. To be a human is to be continually at risk. I mean, risk is our existential condition. None of us knows what's going to happen next. Um, One thing I'd say also about the consolations of philosophy and religion is that they all ask us to put our personhood off to the side. As you say, embodied being, we are embodied beings individually. What I love about poetry, lyric poetry, is it says uh, you 
it's not God's plan. It's not have a detached philosophical attitude. It's you as an individual being can make a poem or read a poem that will honor your individual identity your, or your existence. What's beautiful about a poem is that you take on this chaos and this responsibility and you shape it into order, uh, make something of it. Uh, Emerson says what we need to be is active souls. Uh, and and, and mm. certainly when you make a poem, you have become an active soul. When you're a victim, you're a passive experiencer of whatever it is that's happened. But to turn your world into words and then shape that is to become an active soul. And it's just as true about reading as it is about writing. Uh, again, Emerson says there's creative reading as well as creative writing. Mm. You know, so I think what we do is we read we look, when we're reading poems, when we're listening to songs, we're looking for the things that will sustain us. We're not just, you know, we're, we're trying to creatively, in, in creative reading, we're trying to find what it is that's true and deep and sustaining our spirits and the dignity of our own world. Again, Emerson, he says to himself somewhere, he says, make your own Bibles. <laughs> you know, gather together all the poems and fragments mm. and stuff that have shaken your spirit and, and sustained it. Create your own Bibles. Mm. That's a job that we have, mm. seems to me. Um, is there a poem you're thinking of as we're speaking that speaks to this? Gosh. He goes blank. Have you got one? <laughs> Um, I have those books over there. I'll see if we can find something. <laughs> I, I have must a lot. Be something. And I, uh, I know. know. I, I will say this. I, I will say this about that. It's, it's, it, it, um, there's this book I wrote called Concerning the Book that is the Body of the Beloved. Yeah. It's a sequence of poems that just goes on forever. I think there are about 600 of them now. But the, the word book for me, uh, uh, well, I should say that I, this phrase appeared in my head one morning. Um, the book that is the resurrection of the body, the beloved, which is the world. And I immediately knew what the phrase meant. And the book, I, I capitalized it in, in the poems about the book. It is not a Bible. It's not a spiritual document in any ordinary sense. It's a humanist secular document. It's, it's the anthology. It's, it's, it's Emerson's Make Your Own Bibles. It's, a, it's your own... Um, what do they call it? Playlist. Yeah. Let the record show he's in the 21st century. It's your playlist. And, and, and uh, what sustains you. But uh, it's not a resurrection of the, of the beloved in any other world beyond it. It's, it's, it's us living our lives sometimes, you know, as if sleepwalkers, if not alive. It's nothing Christian. But I don't mind saying Here's, here, here's actually one I wrote down is short from, you, from concerning the book which speaks to what you're saying saying the word is seizing the world not by the scruff not roughly but still fervent still the fierce hug of love yeah. Yeah. Martin yeah. Um, Farrowell said of this book of yours if Basho, Rumi, and Rilke could somehow have a child together, I imagine they would write poems, something like these. <laughs> what does Martin Buber say? He says, you know, um, uh, hallowing the everyday. 
this is what language can do when it recovers from, uh, from the abyss of meaninglessness. It can affirm the world. It can bless the world. There's, there's a, the, the poem by Robert Hayden that ends, What Did I Know? What Did I Know of Love's Austere and Lonely Offices? You, you mm. quote that in Poetry as Survival as um, having all the elements of that lyric, that mm. lyric, lyric voice. Do you want to read that one? It's sure. Um, it's a poem by Robert Hayden called Those Winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking, when the rooms were warm, he'd call. And slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? You know, the combination of celebration and heartbreak is just, it's just, uh, it's overwhelming in that mm -hmm. poem to me. Mm -hmm. And the incantatory consolation of language if you say, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Hmm, means something. But if you say, what did I know? What did I know mm. of love's austere and lonely offices? That incantatory repetition that goes into our hearts and that changes our voices. You cannot say the same phrase the same way in human speech. You change it. You seek some other nuance in the same phrase. After a short break, more with Gregory Orr. And you can find this show again in three of the libraries at onbeing.org. Poets and Poetry, Words Make Worlds, and The Body, Healing, and Trauma. We've created libraries from our 15-year archive for browsing or deep diving by theme, for teaching and reflection and conversation. Find all of this and an abundance of more at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Gregory Orr at the 2018 Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival. 
much of his life as a poet has flowed out of and addressed the matter of human trauma. When he was on the brink of adolescence, he accidentally shot and killed his younger brother on a hunting trip. He writes in the lyric tradition of poetry. So I want to ask you, um, so the, the personal lyric uh, is the, the use of the word I, right? I mean, that's, that's fundamental to it. Um, I find myself curious at how, I don't want to say, I, so in this moment we're in of, you know, Me Too yeah. and other ways people are raising their voices and their stories with a freedom that I think so many of us are shocked to understand wasn't there before. And that's part of the problem. <laughs> um, that the realization that wasn't there. Um, and yet, um, it's very messy. And um, we have to create trustworthy, more generative spaces uh, beyond just getting the story out there. Sometimes we have to just get the story out there, but that doesn't take us all the way, right? So I'm just wondering how you, what you see might be generative and helpful, knowing what you know about words and stories and what they can do at their deepest for a moment like this. Sure, sure. So you're asking me to go beyond the present moment into the moment of hope and faith. Okay, I'll do my best. But I would like to... F- kind of pause in the awkward unease we're feeling now Mm -hmm. and say that the story, it's what's so clear with racism, with sexual assault in our culture is that we have a culture-wide experience of forms of trauma that are culture-wide and that people have experienced experience constantly. with something like, let's say, that we'll just use the Me Too I mean, movement. And this, this has been a part of this, the ravages of living in bodies, right? The jeopardy yes, of living in absolutely. bodies. I mean, and, and nothing, nothing more informs you about the jeopardy of living in a body mm-hmm. than the experience of trauma, whatever form that takes. Uh, trauma is an assault on the dignity of your own being, but it's also an assault on your body and they're deeply intertwined. What I would say about the moment of Me Too right now is that uh, the stories, the, the, it's not the stories coming out, it's the individual people saying, I had this experience, that personal pronoun, reclaiming uh, uh, just the dignity and, and courage of story against huge silencing, the silencing from the culture, but also the silencing within, right. where, the, where, where we create the, the pathological story which we, many of us use to order our lives, it was my fault. Mm-hmm. You see how that's an ordering principle? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was in control. I caused myself to be assaulted. And even that thing you were yeah, right? talking about a minute ago, that shame is yes. one of these things that disembodies you. In Absolutely. Fact. Yes. Absolutely. It's a survival technique, but it's run amok. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know from many accounts that, that we can leave our bodies, that the person, that the child being assaulted on the bed can hover mm-hmm. above the bed mm-hmm. and look down. Right? We know this. We know it from testimony. 
It's that shock at the center of our embodied being that frees a mind into a kind of horror ecstasy. You know, people get drunk and take drugs or meditate to achieve a positive ecstasy. But we also know that the human mind and imagination can do uh, an ecstasy of um, despair and horror. Coming down into the body, coming down into claiming our stories, where we can go past those stories, we don't know. We can slip back into the darkness mm -hmm. as individuals, as a culture. And, and so I don't have hope, mm -hmm. but I do recommend courage <laughs> and voting. And voting, okay. <laughs> but so. It's a crude method, voting. It's not, uh, yeah, well, doesn't come from the soul, not, but. No, right, well. But, so, but I guess here's what I'm curious about. I wonder if you could offer some wisdom on. I feel like <laughs> there's, we've opened the floodgates to, for the stories to be told, for the eye to be raised. But I worry that still that is such a, tender thing, you know, those stories that are being brought out into the world that have trauma at their root, right? This is trauma finding yeah. a voice. And that the spaces in which the stories get told, you know, this, this poetry of our lives is revealed, a lot of these spaces are not worthy of it. And they're not tender with it. I just, I just wonder if you have thoughts about as we move forward, how do we, you know, these are, these stories now, as you say, these are the thresholds, right? This is not the, yeah. the order on the other side of the chaos. Yeah. This is the holding of the chaos and looking at it straight on. Um, but do you have thoughts about how we make space, create conditions um, in our life together for, that are worthy of that lyricism of our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way forward, I think, is, is also through more dark. Um, we've mentioned shame and the silencing, the self-blame that comes with trauma. Um, I think another thing that scares us is rage. Mm -hmm. uh, those who have been harmed, uh, one response is shame. That's where they turn the rage in on the self. We all know that. We've done that. We do it. It's one way we live. But you can also turn the rage outward. And that's scary. That's terrifying. Um, rage among humans. Intimate rage. Rage when we're near people who are feeling rage and anger. And again, this is part of our legacy. You know, I, I, I mean, I think what art does is it tries to get to the place where we're, a lyric tries to get to, to what we all share. And I think we share mysteries, but we also share passions. And passions are very, very frightening. Uh, we all experience joy. We all experience fear. Uh, we all experience anger. We all experience sadness. And we all experience disgust. Um, that's social psychology, I think. Mm -hmm. Some kind of experiment, mm -hmm. some other story. But I mean, it, but there's a commonality for us. And, and anger is one of those. They won't go away. We don't have 
a solution to our passions. What we have, and I guess this is what I would say lyric poetry does, is we have the effort on the part of poets to both articulate their passion and um, modulate it into the form that we call a poem, into some kind of coherence. Um, whether I think they can lead us forward in, in ways. That is to say, if we can find the poems and songs that seem to, to show a path forward for us. But they won't be, they'll be different for each one of us. Right. And, and I think one of our kind of spiritual tasks in my notion of secular religion mm-hmm. is, is that job that Emerson assigns us to, to make our own Bibles, take responsibility for what we consider to be um, meaningful statements of being. Meaningful in the sense that we can walk in the darkness, our own darkness, stepping, using these poems and songs and pieces of wisdom as as solid footing for our journey. Hmm. Where the journey is going and, and you know, I, I'm sorry. Nobody ever told me, so I don't couldn't, <laughs> couldn't share that one. Except we're, what is it? I'll, I'll, I'll say this, though. You know, what are they The Christian thing, a uh, uh, veil of tears, a yeah. uh, uh, valley of tears that we walk through. Or the valley of Johnny, the shadow of death or the veil of tears. Of the and you got to walk that lonesome valley. You got to walk it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody else can walk it for you. Yeah, great song. I will not sing it. <laughs> but, but Keats, Keats, who is one of the saints in my secular religion, Keats says, oh, you know, it's not a veil of tears. Uh, There's no other world. He says, it's a veil of soul making. And our job as humans is to create our own souls. Hmm. And I think one of the ways we do that is by finding the songs and poems that sustain us and explain us and and make us um, brave enough to live in this world. So we make our Bibles and we make our liturgies too. Absolutely. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with lyric poet Gregory Orr. should end with some poems of yours. Um, I have to say this, these two books um, about the body of the beloved, they are mm-hmm. just beautiful and wild and mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's yeah. a very nice thought. Yeah. Hold that thought. And so, well, so I, 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 I wrote, you know, I have all these page numbers written down and then I just kind of stopped because I, I, so I wonder what you might want to read for us. Um, oh, I thought that was your job. <laughs> okay. Well, I will, I will say that, not that I'm looking forward to this, but if something was going to be put on my grave, it would be short, so you wouldn't have to be a big stone. I, I, it would be this. It would be a short poem from that. To be alive, not just the carcass but the spark that's crudely put, but 
if we're not supposed to dance, why all this music? Oh. I do write short poems, don't I? <laughs> Lovely. Would you read um, How Beautiful the Beloved? I'd love to. Yeah. See if I can find it. Just a little bit longer so we can draw this out. <laughs> None of these poems has titles, so it's takes Right, so yeah, this is what it was bequeathed us, right? Ah, that's a different one. Oh, it is? You can get two for the price of one here. Okay, I'll, good. I'll read them both. We'll take two, yes. Take two. Let's see how beautiful the beloved is. So and would you say a little bit? This is, I know, um, I remember um, Elizabeth Alexander saying to me, uh, it's not that the words of a poem are true, but they get at undergirding truths, right? And so I, ever since then, I, I know, uh, you know, to, to ask you what this is about is a nonsense question, but there's something going on in this, these volumes of you. Well, I mean, it's all kinds of things. It's, it's, it's blessing and wound and trauma, and it's love and trauma, and, and the book and the body. And I feel like for yeah. you, somehow, the, the beloved is somewhere always for you, your brother. And on yeah. from there, other beloveds. And, yeah. and then somehow the beloved is not just a person. It's No, no, no. Right? It's, I, I think for me, you know, when I try to think about these, these things, when I think, try to think about this term that I rely on so often in the poems, um, yes, my brother, my mother, both, both deeply lost and also the, the wanting to bring them back because oblivion seems a cruel place to be. Um, the beloved can be, I think, in my thinking, my understanding of it, certainly always a person um, or people. We have multiple beloveds, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. uh, creatures. Mm -hmm. Creatures. My dog is obviously one of my beloveds, and my cat is an off-again, on-again beloved. <laughs> Depending on how she's feeling and how I'm feeling and what she's doing. Uh, places. Places, I think, mm. can be... Mm. Beloved, that is that we can enter into a relationship that's deep and reciprocal and sustaining, where we give to the place and the place gives to us. Anyway, I'm supposed to read some poems. This is two poems. This is called "How Beautiful a Beloved," and I, you know, it's again, it's about. Well, I have no, I have no idea what it's about. How beautiful the beloved, whether garbed in mortal tatters or in her dress of everlastingness. Moon broken on the water, or moon still whole in the night sky. And then the other one you mentioned, uh, what was bequeathed This is what was bequeathed yes. I'm sure you, you, you know that. Oh, shall we gather at the river and the, yeah. the whole the whole sense of the the other world as the other shore of the river and stuff and this is Mr. Orr perversely reversing that. This is what was bequeathed us. This earth, the beloved left, and leaving, left to us. 
no other world but this one. Willows and the river and the factory with its black smokestacks. No other shore, only this bank on which the living gather. No meaning but what we find here. No purpose but what we make. That and the beloved's clear instructions. Turn me into song. Sing me awake. Thank you, Gregory Orr. This has been fun. Yeah. I was so scared. Gregory Orr is the author of two books about poetry, Poetry as Survival and A Primer for Poets and Readers of Poetry. Also, a memoir, The Blessing, and 12 collections of poetry, including How Beautiful the Beloved and The Last Love Poem I Will Ever Write. He taught at the University of Virginia from 1975 to 2019, where he founded the university's Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, and Jale Akavan. Special thanks this week to Martin Farrowell, Catherine Block, Paul Alshaus, David Mayhew, Julia Han Gallego, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival and Foundation. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.